How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Before we start, I want to say a few things before we get started. But before we do that, I want to introduce my friend, Ian, who is also here with us today. Hello, thank you all for uh, tuning into our podcast. I am very excited for this topic we're going to be discussing, uh, the Knights Templars. I have familiarized myself with uh, Scott Walter, an author who uh, wrote the book Hooked X, uh, where he talks about the Kensington Runestone and how it dates back to the Knights Templars uh, being in North America. Yep, that was a very good book. I recommend it if you guys get the chance to read it. It's a really good book, and we're actually going to be talking to him in a few weeks from now, you know. Should be interesting. You think so? Yeah, I'm very excited to uh, see see and hear Scott Walter. Should be good. All right. First, I want to mention that uh, I realized this episode is out a little early, but I want to keep the podcast rolling. And I thought you guys would enjoy hearing about today's subject, which is like we were saying, the Knights Templar. It is the subject I've always enjoyed talking about, and it's something really cool. And I think you guys will really enjoy hearing about today. Uh, an update on the Facebook page. I got it out. And uh, you go look for it. It's under the same name as the podcast, obviously, Histories, Mysteries. Uh, We're still working on it, but if you guys want to go like the page, we'll get that up and we'll get it running, and it should be good. You see some more stuff about the podcast and get some more information. And then uh, next, don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on our Anchor website, which is uh, the awesome podcast server that we use to make all of these episodes possible. All right, here we go. On the topic of Knights Templars, I am uh, familiar with their uh, very difficult origin story, but would you like to elaborate on where they are based and uh, what their origin story was like? Yeah, I think it's only natural to start with their origin, obviously. So, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon, which was obviously, as some of you know, Temple of Solomon was one of the most famous temples out of ancient Judea back in the day. Um, Also known as the origin of Solomon's Temple, where it keeps that theme. The Knights Templar, or simply the Templars, were a Catholic military order founded in 1119 and recognized in 1139 by the papal bull Omni Datum Openum. And now they were called a Catholic military order, but as we'll see later, that term is used very loosely. And uh, in 1118, they were actually only nine knights. Hughes de Pond, Godfrey de Saint Omar, Payens de Montemir, Arcaban de Saint Armand, and Andre Montmartre. So actually, they started really small, only nine members. You can imagine that's like less than a quarter of a classroom that this group would grow into one of the most powerful organizations in Europe at their time. Uh, now, on that topic, um, is there <clears throat> was there a hierarchy of leadership? Yeah. So um, essentially, the, the highest would be like the grandmaster of the Templars, and then it would be masters, and then it would be broken up into several smaller groups. There were... Uh, Actually, commanderies. Commanderies were essentially spread throughout Europe, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But these commanderies, they were uh, they ranged quite a bit. There were uh, commanderies that were dedicated to farming. There were commanderies dedicated to uh, training soldiers to fight. So, although being very much a uh, military as well as a monkly order, they had tons of different roles within their organization, and it became really complex. All right, so uh, in the year... Years before 1139, which was when they truly started doing stuff, and as we talked about, those commanderies would start developing around 1139, 
It is rumored that before that they held place in the Al-Aska Mosque and were digging under the foundation of the original Temple Mount looking for what historical theorists assume is the true origin of the powers that they would amass. And uh, some of you might know some of these artifacts and have heard rumors about it before, but these included uh, the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, or even uh, ancient scrolls. But whatever it was, we do know that after they amassed this great power from the Pope via the bull, Omnidatum Opnum, like we were talking about earlier, they became uh, truly powerful. In Omnidatum Opnum, the papal bull we were talking about, issued by Pope Innocent II, in 1139, also called the Papal Bull of Every Good Gift, this established the iconic white uniform of the Templars and the Red Crusader's Cross, which they were to always bear on their chests as a sign of the life-giving cross, or the cross of Jesus, as well as the protection and tutelage from the Holy See for all time to come, giving them pretty much ultimate power with homage only to the Pope. So if you can imagine, uh, you, this is like not having a boss, uh, not having to listen to your parents, only listening to like the president, which is like the most powerful person in the country. The Pope was the most powerful person back then over medieval Europe. So it's pretty interesting. Um, originally, as I was saying, they were nine knights, but their role was to protect Christian pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land and to fight against the Saracens. Uh, their motto in Latin was uh, non nobis domine, non nobis sed nomini tuo de glorum which translated English means not unto us, Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name, give glory. So that motto itself shows their origin as not only warriors, which they were probably best known for, but also reestablished their place as monks because they were also very holy organization. And they were a combination of church members and uh, soldiers. So they played a very interesting part, as we'll see. <clears throat> so um, what do you uh, believe they're most, uh, what do you believe that they uh, most wanted to protect? What do you mean by that? Like, uh, do they, would they like to protect like their, their territory most or do they want to protect like their religion and ideals more? Okay, I see where you're going with that. That is actually a really good question. It's pretty much like religion, and your faith versus uh, the concepts of fighting and warfare. Uh, it is, it's very two contradicting factors. And uh, I guess it depends on who you were because yes, there were very, uh, there were very holy Templars, but then there are also Templars who were even um, prisoners of war and who were criminals back in their day, who became members of the order and they reestablished themselves and they made themselves into holy men but fighting machines. So you could come from a variety of different backgrounds, but become a part of this order. And then you could establish like a new name for yourself. So it was pretty interesting. Uh, most of the Templars rule book came from an order known as the Cistercians. The Cistercians, also known as, known as the Trappists, was a Roman Catholic religious order consisting of monasteries of monks and nuns that also played an instrumental part in creating the Templar order. Uh, founded on March 21st in 1098, a St. Robert of Molesman, an, an abbot of the Benedictine Abbey, felt compelled to lead 21 of his monks to Sitiax in order to establish a new monastery. His new monastery, his new abbey, sorry, was to de be dedicated to the effort of restoring the Benedictine rule in its most primitive form, consi consisting 
of a life devoted to prayer and poverty. If some of you guys know the themes of medieval history, you'll also know that back then the the Catholic Church was not the, the most holy of orders, as I, I'll oh, say this slightly yeah, as it is today. <laughs> there's so much hatred towards the Catholic Church, especially um, the Knights Templars. There's a lot of uh, rumors that the Catholic Church may have uh, played a role in their disappearance. Yeah, and we'll talk about that later. So pretty much the Cistercians wanted to reestablish like an actual holy life and not be corrupted by money or politics, which the church very well back then was. Uh, in the year 1128, the later St. Bernard of Clairvax, Clairvax being based off their Cistercian Abbey by the same name, attended the Council of Troyes, at which he traced the outlines of the rule of the Knights Templar, which soon became the ideal of Christian nobility. So the Templars were like this, this look-to force. They were uh, everybody wanted to be. They looked up to the Templars and pretty much every aspect of life because, like we were saying, there were monks and warriors. They were the best of both worlds back then that you probably could be a part of. Um, he even commented on the order in his Liber Ad Militis Templi de Laud Novale Ma Militia. Sorry, that's the Latin. Not fluent in Latin, if you can tell. <laughs> um, in English, that's the book to the Knights Templar uh, in praise of a new knighthood and help this helped boost their morale among the order. Like, So it's essentially like writing a review to them or a book and commenting on them and saying how well they were and pretty much representing Europe in that same theme because everybody looked up to them at the time and that boosts morale among the Templars. And it showed them like what instrumental force they actually played in society. Um, he began this book by addressing the founder and first master of the Templars, apparently saying that Hughes Dupont had asked him three times to write an exhortation to the order. So imagine sending a letter to someone three times and then them finally doing it a while later. Sounds like uh, the publication process. Yeah, right. In the first half, uh, he put his weight firmly behind the Templars by comparing them with the regular knights of the age. He complimented them for their virtues of following a higher calling and being fearless in the face of battle and maintaining their place as holy monks, like we were talking about before. They maintain, maintain that balance of the best of both worlds. And then uh, in the second half, he provided a description of the holy places, linking the Templars to them and presenting them as custodians of a key aspect of Christian heritage. So he essentially gave them all the holy places, which were the most important part of Christian life back then. Tons of people would go on pilgrimage all across Europe into the Middle East and North Africa and all these different places just to see these these artifacts that played such an important role in the religion at the time. Uh, ultimately, over the years, the Templar power would grow, and they would become the most influential force of warrior monks fighting in the Christian holy wars of the Crusades. And we'll talk about that right now. All right, moving on to the Crusades. Uh, we're going to talk... Oh, yes, the Crusades. A great topic to talk about. You see it a lot in pop culture, like uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Great movie, by the way. But uh, these bloody, gory battles over religion and territory, they're, they're talked about so often, and uh, uh, we'd like to elaborate on that topic. Yeah, right. Everything from uh, Indiana Jones finding the Holy Grail to extremists in uh, our modern culture. 
So like I was saying, we're going to go talk about the first five of the Crusades actually today, because uh, these were the initial ones. They they varied, and uh, these were the initial ones, and uh, ultimately the other ones after this didn't make any significant differences to the Islamic or Christian states, so we won't talk about those ones. All right, going on to the First Crusade. The First Crusade to recapture the Holy Land was called by Pope Urban II at the Council of Claremont in 1095. So, for those who don't know, the Council of Claremont was this huge meeting of Christian leaders all across Europe, and they all gathered together, and they pretty much redefined what warfare was, because back then, it was very it was very much knights fighting knights in castles, and very much what you picture, like, in a medieval, medieval, medieval times tournament or some stuff like that. But this redefined it. It was a war for Christ. So, it was very interesting. Uh, Urban called for a military expedition to aid the Byzantine Empire, which had recently lost most of Anatolia to the Seljuk Turks, which are Muslims, essentially. Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvax, as we talked about earlier, who was a very important man to the Templar and pretty much built their rule book, like we mentioned. Uh, a member of the Cistercian Order, he talked about what it would be to fight a holy war and kind of began to define that and what it would look like. Because, like we were saying, this was a very different kind of warfare. Uh, many were convinced by the Pope who would give absolution of sins to any of those who fought for Christ's army. So not only were you going to fight, but because you were fighting, you could get your sins absolved. So it was a huge incentive for many of those people back then to actually go and fight this war. Well, what would you say, like, the primary weaponry was like in the, the medieval, like, uh, uh, military was like? Yeah, that's a good question. So, have you ever been to a medieval times tournament? I have. I see um, riding the horses with the swords, you know? It's very similar to that, but uh, it also different. It was also very different because it depended pretty much on your class. You would have more armor, more skills, uh, maybe a horse. You would get all the extra added stuff on, depending on how rich you were back then. It all depended on your social class. Like some of the lower people would have uh, maybe like a spear and basic armor where higher ups would have the, the full shielded armor, the helmet, the horse and the lance and everything else like that. The more popular, the more uh, you'd see the fully armored uh, knights in popular culture today, right? Um, yeah, it, pretty much. Essentially what you see on TV and stuff like that is very much more of the rich style of knights and what they would have looked like. Um, although seen as very much a holy war, it was also a genius political mover for Europe back then because it stopped the warring feuds between countries and united them under one cause. So if you can imagine, uh, Britain was fighting France, which was fighting Germany, which was fighting Italy. And it was just this huge pot of metal and fury, everybody going against everybody. But because of this holy war and this new idea of the crusades, everybody was able to unite together and essentially unite against one enemy, which were the Seljuk Turks to regain the Holy Land. And the one thing that kept them all united, which was their faith as Christians, to go back and seize the land that Christ grew up in, lived in. Uh, during this crusade, the crusader states of the Kingdom of Jerusalem were established, including the tr county of Tripoli, the Principality of Antioch, and the county of Edessa, although going against the Byzantine wishes. So essentially... The Byzantines wanted the, the Latins, which were... All right, so this is the difference. Byzantine was more to the west. 
if you know where Constantinople is, Istanbul, it was like the border between the East and the West. That's where the Byzantine Empire was based out of. And there was also the Latin Christians who were based out of Europe, which is like our modern day Italy, Germany, France, Spain, and so on. So pretty much what the Byzantines wanted was their territory back because the Seleucid Turks had moved against them and taken their territory. But instead, what the Latins did was they built this new kingdom of Jerusalem and built different principalities and counties and very much made it their own going against the Byzantine wishes. Um, very, very more crusades would follow after this and their objectives would widen and as would the field of conflict to include Egypt, Constantinople, and even provinces within Europe itself. So essentially it started in the Holy Land, Jerusalem, Israel, but it would very much branch out to other places as well. Um, this overwhelming victory was largely due to the infighting within the Muslim lands and their being unprepared for the attack that ensued. However, because of the overwhelming victory, the Knights Templar were established. So two things there. The Muslims, or the Seleucid Turks, were very much like the Latin Christians in that they were also fighting each other. And while Europe was uniting, they were still fighting against each other, and they Latin sneaked up on them, and they didn't have enough organization to really hold back against them. And then uh, the Knights Templar were established during this first crusade, and then, as we talked about earlier, they'd be based out of Salman's Temple, which is the modern-day Alaska Mosque. Um, even though they started out as a very poor order of nine knights, as we mentioned before, their power would grow, and they would play an important part in the Second Crusade. And we'll go on and talk about that. So, uh, going on to the Second Crusade, Jake, um, this was a, a vile attempt to reclaim the Holy Land uh, stolen from them by the Latins, correct? Uh, to a sense, they had lost, they had started losing counties and provinces to the Seleucid Turks. The Seleucid Turks were building back up their army. And, uh, like, essentially, the Second Crusade was started in response to the fall of the county of Edessa in 1144 to the forces of Zengi, a county that had, found, that had been founded during the First Crusade by King Baldwin I of Jerusalem in 1098. Um, the Crusader army was split in two by the King Louis VII of France and Emperor Conrad III of Germany, and they marched separately across Europe. After crossing Byzantine territory and Anatolia, both of the armies were ultimately separately defeated by the Seljuk Turks. So the Turks essentially split them up into two forces, and they took them out one by one. So it was a good move, tactical move on them. Um, Louis had, a, had enthusiastically supported the crusade however conrad was reluctant to join at first but was won over by saint bernard of clairvax so you wonder if this was ultimately how they got separated and were able to get defeated by the turks because of conrad's reluctance he wasn't as into the fighting and supporting the crusade as louis was and he had to be convinced by saint bernard um the german pilgrim theodoric when visiting the Holy Land between 1169 and 1174, right after the Second Crusade to take a glance at the many sites and the reconquered Jerusalem, he humbly described himself as the dung of all monks and display to the Templars' grandeur that they had amassed. So essentially, he saw all this great territory that the Templars and the Crusaders had gathered in Jerusalem during this time, and he called himself the dung of all monks because of how great and beautiful it was. 
that they were able to all unite together and be able to do this. However, the Templars also suffered major losses during the Second Crusade, and this particularly came at the Battle of Edessa. And according to Iman al-Din Zengi, leader of the Islamic Caliphate, so the Seljuk Turks, during this time, he said that neither age, condition, nor sex was spared. And they essentially just killed them all. Oh, yeah. very violent, uh, bloody time. Um, this helped show that the Templars weren't completely invincible. And up to this point, the Second Crusade had been fairly successful. But this shows how the Turks start sneaking back in and they want their revenge. And they'll really get it in the Third Crusade, which we'll talk about a little bit later. This, uh, like we were saying, it had been fairly successful. Uh, king Louis VII of France and the German king Conrad III were leading the Latins to victory in almost every battle they fought. But now Europe began to lose trust in the Templars, revealing their Achilles heel. So pretty much up to this point, they thought that the Templars were this unstoppable force that they could use pretty much to do whatever they want. They they had this power that Latin that the Latins very much needed, but we see that they weren't invincible at this point. Um, the Second Crusade was a series of ups and downs, but ultimately failed because the Christians, Christian army was not able to take control of Edessa or Damascus. The attack on Damascus was not well planned, and as a result, it was a victory for the Muslim forces and a defeat for the Christians in 1149. All right, now we'll move on. Now, moving on to the Third Crusades, this was a... Uh desperate attempt uh, by the Turks to claim their bloody revenge against the Templars and uh, overall they were highly successful and uh, the Templars suffered uh, enormous losses in bloody, gruesome, horrible ways. Yeah, the Third Crusade is truly where the Turks and the Muslims get their revenge. Uh, the Third Crusade, also known as the King's Crusade, took place in 1189 to 1192 and was attempted by the leaders of the three most powerful states of Western Christianity, England, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, to recapture the Holy Land after Jerusalem was taken by the Abiyud Sultan at Saladin in 1187. So the Turks actually take back the Holy Land, and then this is a desperate attempt between, imagine, and we'll, this will be important for later, the most powerful groups in Latin Europe go against the... Salahuddin, which is pronunciation, the original pronunciation. They go against this great sultan of the Muslims, and they do a very desperate attempt to try to get back to the Holy Land. During the Third Crusade, the Templars met their most hated enemy, Salahuddin, as we talked about early, earlier. Saladin was the leader of the Abiyud dynasty and would later be responsible for retaking the Muslim Holy Land. And they killed thousands of Latin Christians, executing several grandmasters of the Templar, and took their most holy relic, a fragment of the true cross. Um, what would you say was the primary uh, method of execution at that time? Back then, just cut their head off. Beheaded? Oh, wow. <laughs> if you imagine, uh, I, it's probably in some of those movies out there. I'd have to go back and find a specific one. But they just took the sword right to your head and just knock it right off. Wow, that's insane. I wouldn't want to be any of the grandmasters back then. And remember, we were talking about this earlier, that this was England, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, the three most powerful groups in Latin Christianity, and they all but die to Salahuddin, the, the sultan of the Turks. It's crazy. 
Um, according to those who suffered the worst of his wrath, he, Saladin, was the rod of the Lord's fury sent to rage and exterminate the obstinate people. So that was the very strong view of the Muslims at that time, as we can tell. And uh, he was not a person to mess with. Uh, there's a particular battle called the Horns of Hatton, where he actually had them all encircled and he just kept them out there for days and they like slowly started dying of thirst and hunger before they finally just gave up. So and then cool. they all just got their heads cut off eventually. <laughs> uh, my One of my friends actually got to go see the Horns of Hatton and he said he was even dying from the heat. You imagine being in chainmail and armor and riding horses and you're also circled by your enemy. It's terrible defeat. <laughs> yeah. um, it showed that the Templars, who up to this point had been the strongest military force in Europe, and which was essentially its own independent state, had an Achilles heel. So the Templars, as we've been progressing and we've been talking about them, by this point, they've grown so powerful that essentially their their own nation spread throughout Europe. They have their own like government, essentially. They have their own military. They have their own currency. They have their own food. Um, talking about currency, they actually developed Europe's first banking system in which uh, pilgrims could deposit money in Europe, and uh, they would get a piece of paper. They'd take their boat on pilgrimage across the water, across the Mediterranean Sea. They'd arrive in Jerusalem, and then they'd give that paper to the Templars, and they could get their currency back and use it in the Holy Land. So it was very ingenious. They got so much money off this, but when we talk about their downfall, we'll see how that ultimately wasn't a very good thing for them. Uh, the end of the crusade was essentially a tie, and on September 2nd, 1192, Richard the Lionheart, King of England, and Saladin formed a treaty where the Muslims would have control over Jerusalem, but would allow unarmed Christian pilgrims and merchants to visit the city. Richard left back for Europe on October 9th, and then the crusade was over. Um, I'll talk about Richard the Lionheart really quickly. So he was the king of England. He was one of the the best of the best warriors from England at this time. And when he went out on the crusades, he was uh, one of the strongest men out on the front. He did a lot of great work for the crusaders. But ultimately, as we saw, the third crusade would fail. And when he went back on October 9th, actually, if you guys have ever read Robin Hood, his uh, I forget the relation between them, but... One of his relatives, King John, got control, and he had to sign the Magna Carta because he was such a terrible king that they all rioted against him, and they made him sign a petition that would ultimately give him over, give the people more say in how the government was run. Yeah, so he would uh, receive uh, receive from his position of power. So that's the relation there between uh, Lionheart and and King John. Uh, his last name, Lionheart, actually became known because he had the heart of a lion essentially that's that's what that means he was so strong out there on the front that he was able to get that nickname and then uh we said that this was a major loss for the turks but uh in actuality they still allow christian pilgrims to come they allowed people to go visit the holy land but they weren't allowed to come armed and there were they didn't want any more crusades essentially to come back to their territory <laughs> They're like, they're official, knock it off, leave, don't come back. <laughs> All right, and then that's essentially the third crusade.
Um, now the fourth crusade. I am uh, I'm pretty unfamiliar with this one. Would you say that this is more of a uh, win for the Templars, or do you think this is even further deeper down into the descent of destruction? I don't even know what you can call the fourth crusade. It wasn't really either, and it was very, very different from the first three crusades and the fence that it didn't even go to Jerusalem. <laughs> Um, the Fourth Crusade began in 1198 after being initiated by Pope Innocent III with the goal of retaking Jerusalem with a campaign beginning in Egypt. So they wanted to go to Jerusalem, and they thought that they would go to it through Egypt, but we'll see that that doesn't pan out. Um, initially, their target was Egypt because the Egyptian Abunid Sultanate was the strongest and most powerful Muslim state at the time and would undermine Muslim defense of Jerusalem. So essentially, they're going to go for the strongest point, and they're going to try to knock it out. But uh, by 1202, Europe had gathered 33,500 men for transportation to Egypt through the Venetian fleet. The majority of this army consisted of French knights, along with crusaders from Flanders, as well as the Holy Roman Empire. So we have French here, we have Flanders, and we have the Holy Roman Empire, which was pretty much Germany at the time. However, after realizing that they lacked the funds, this is the interesting point, to travel to Egypt, most of the leaders instead decided to go to Constantinople. After being insulted upon reaching the city, a group of 80 Franks essentially said screw it and defeated 500 Byzantines and laid siege to Constantinople, toppling it in 1204. So they didn't even make it to their uh, desired uh, location. They instead decided to... Cut it short and just destroy uh, what was in their path, uh, Constantinople. Yeah, pretty much. They're like, you know, you Byzantines have not been very helpful. You know, we're kind of pissed off at you. We're more pissed off at the Turks, but you're the next best thing. So they just took Constantinople <laughs> and the, the fault of the Byzantines. Um, interestingly enough, if you guys have ever watched uh, Inferno or read the book by Dan Brown, Enrico Dondolo, the Doge of Venice, is best known for this crusade. Because uh, during the time, he would actually later be buried in the Io Sophia in Constantinople, the city which they sacked. Which the Io Sophia is essentially the most famous cathedral in most famous cathedral in Constantinople at the time. Uh, the Io Sophia in itself, I'll go on a little tangent here, is actually it's been a very interesting building through history because it has changed between Christian and Muslim hands because the Ottomans would later take it, even though the Christians originally built it. So it was both a mosque and a cathedral in one. So you can go there today and you can see actually Islamic art and Christian art all in one place. So it's a very historic and interesting building. All right. Uh, the result of the Fourth Crusade was ultimately the sack and plunder of the Byzantine capital, Constantinople, by the Crusaders. This crusade established the Latin Empire with Constantinople at its capital. So like we said, they pretty much said, screw it, Constantinople, we hate you, Byzantine. The Byzantine Empire took their capital, Constantinople, and they built their empire a little bit bigger. So they then didn't go to Jerusalem, which was the original goal, but they still got something out of it, if you, if you can say that. I don't know how holy that is going against other Christians, but as we'll see... Uh, or we won't see this later, but there was another crusade called the Albigensian Crusade where they essentially did the same thing. They took the idea of the Crusades and went a step further in the fact that they started attacking Christians, their own people, instead of the Muslims. Uh, what else would you do if you can't attack the Muslims, right? Go for yes. your own people? 
Um, it was also a unique crusade because it wasn't an attack on a Muslim state, but on another Christian state, establishing an important president for the crusades that would follow it. So this crusade was ultimately very important because it would make other things like we were talking about the Albigensian crusade and kind of remolded that idea of crusade to include other heathens, even if it's own Christians. <laughs> yes. All right. So that's the fourth crusade in a nutshell. So um, the Fifth Crusade, uh, would you say that they um, succeeded in doing what the Fourth Crusade did not? I would say, in a sense, the Fifth Crusade is one of the last major crusades that we'll see. Um, we mentioned the Albigensian Crusade, which went against other Christians. This was really the last major crusade against the Islamic Caliphate itself. So another crusade was started in 1215 against uh, again by Pope Innocent III, and would be one of the last crusades that many made any lasting difference on the Islamic and Christian states. The Fifth Crusade essentially did what the Fourth was supposed to do. So we know the, the Fourth Crusade was supposed to go down to Egypt and attack up, take out the strongest power, and then continue doing that. You guys have ever heard uh, the saying, you kill the snake by cutting off its head, and then the rest dies. Um... The Fifth Crusade was led by King Andrew II of Hungary and Leopold VI of the Duke of Austria. So um, we don't even really have major leaders in this war. Um, Hungary and Austria were important territories, but they weren't really as strong as what we've talked about before with the Holy Roman Empire and France and England. So this one even starts dying down a little bit. And then it it's like a stepping stone down after the Fifth Crusade with uh, less and less might going against their forces. Um, Oliver of Paderborn at the time described his site of the city after sacking Damietta, which was one of the most important battles here in this Fifth Crusade. He noted that uh, Damietta was renowned among kingdoms, most famous in the pride of Egypt, and the mistress of the sea. So they succeed in taking out this really important stronghold in Egypt, and they continue to go up through Egypt, but... It's debated if they ever really truly took back Jerusalem. We don't really, as historians, that's one of the subjects of debate. But uh, Damietta was the first stop in an attempted invasion of Egypt by the Crusader forces and was a grand city in comparison to many of those in medieval Europe. So this was one of those really great Islamic cities that they were able to take in the Fifth Crusade. And this is why, the, or one of the reasons why the Fifth Crusade was so important, because it showed that they still had that might even though they started dying out dying out around this time and this is 1215 we'll talk about a little bit later the templars die off in 1307 so this crusade wasn't really too far off time-wise from their ultimate demise considering how long they lasted yeah um by taking the city the templars had shown just how strong they were being the first stop in an attempted invasion of egypt by the crusader forces and went up through egypt and they tried to attack Jerusalem. Other than that, um, that's about it for the Fifth Crusade. So um, the other Crusades following this one are just a slow, slow, um, a slow step steps. You said towards their uh, ultimate downfall. Yeah, it really depends on actually how you define a Crusade because we have the movie like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but really, what is the Last Crusade, right? Because that's ultimately how you define that word. So, yes, they 
start dying down after fifth crusade they have less men they have less ability they have less power um the same thing for the islamic caliphate so really they start dying out and we'll get more into that um right now all right so moving on towards the to the downfall of the templars what would you say was the main cause of this downfall and when, when do you when would you say this uh this downfall began I'd say this definitely gradually happened over time, but one of the main events, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, is uh, after having spent years defending the Holy Land, the Templars became one of the most powerful organizations in Europe. However, it sadly came at a price, and the major thing that made them suffer this huge downfall was in 1307, when Philip IV of France, who needed money from his Flemish war, and was unable to obtain it elsewhere, began using Pope Clement V as a puppet pope of sorts, accusing the Templars of heresy, blasphemy, spitting on the cross, and occult worship. So he really headed in for the Templars. He's like, you know what? These guys are really powerful. They have all this money. I have nothing. I need money. One plus one is two. Let's take out the Templars. And uh, the way he did this was by using the Pope, the most powerful person in Europe at the time. And we talked about this in the beginning. You remember that the Templars only responded to the Pope. Oh, yes. So this was very interesting. They were very much betrayed by the one person that they were supposed to respond to. Um, under, under torture, the order was agreed to the charges put against them and began being rounded up to burn at the stake. So they essentially agreed to heresy, blasphemy, spitting on the cross and occult worship, but they knew in their hearts that they didn't do this. And really the only reason we as historians know they said this was because if you were being uh, tortured you were being, your bodies were stretched out. That's how they did it back then. They would tie you up. They'd stretch your limbs as far as they could go they'd uh there's actually stories of how they'd they'd burn their toes until only the bone was left until they started saying stuff it was this really really gruesome torture methods that they used back then that's yeah. that's why they agreed to it you'd agree to the same thing too it'd be like all right screw it fine if i'm gonna stop having my toes burned or my arms and legs stretched then i'll say that i did it and you see these horrible torture devices in museums and stuff where they have these cranks and these ropes and these uh tables they'd lay you out on and they just stretch your limbs into the point in which they feel like they're going to tear off from your body and it's just this horrible horrible torture device that it it convince anyone uh, to do what they'd say yeah, it's really these terrible methods, and that's why uh, this has nothing really to do with the episode, but that's why America put in the Constitution that they get rid of this method. Because even during the Revolution, which is hundreds of years later, they would, uh, if, if Britain had won the American Revolution, or what the Americans called their revolution, they would have hanged, beheaded, ripped their entrails out, burned them, and hung them. All of the revolutionaries... That's what the British, British would have done. So you still have this horrible torture method. Two hundred, right? Two hundred years, or wait, no, five hundred years later. Sorry, guys. And you need to imagine what, how much worse it would have been. Yeah. All the way before that. Um, Jacques de Molay, the last Grand Master of the Templars, being burned at the stake by the 
by the Pope and the King of France, cursed the King and the Pope for their treachery, and prophesied that they would die within the year. And as he had said, both of them actually did. So it's actually really kind of spooky, like this power. I, I, I say power very loosely, but it's like he actually had this prophecy because... What's up with this? Jackie's Bay Malay says they're going to die, and then within the year, they actually do. It's crazy. I think the one died in a, a hunting accident, and then the one, the other one, I think, died of a disease. But you guys can fact check me on that. But that's pretty amazing and kind of scary. <laughs> um, the persecution started by the French king in 1307, but wasn't roughly finished until 1314, the date which they believe most of the Templars were executed. So really, it started in 1307. Uh, they gathered them all up. They locked them in prisons like uh, Dome France. If you guys watch Oak Island, they mentioned that prison on that show, which was one of the, the major ones that they locked the Templars up in. They locked them up. They started gathering them all up. And then eventually... By 1314, they think they've all been burned at the stake and the, the Templars are no longer a thing. However, as we'll get into later, many believe that this actually didn't happen. So it's very interesting. It leads to a lot of discussion on uh, what actually did happen and uh, a lot of theories to uh, erupt uh, about uh, the disappearance of the Templars. Yep. So most saw this as the tragic, tragic end of the Templars, as we've said. But others, however, believe that most of them lived on. Taking their fleets of ships at La Rochelle in France, they sailed from Scotland, built Rosalind Chapel as the last clue, as the last clue of their last European presence and where they were known to have been. We know that the Templars were actually in Scotland and that they had powers there. But then after that, we don't really know. So now we get into the mystery of the history. So what is previously regarded as a fact that the Templars died off before they ever traveled or reached North America, there's a lot of theories and evidence to point towards the fact that they uh, traveled and uh, they continued uh, the practicing their religion in uh, secrecy. Well, yes, I'd say this very loosely because I don't want to affirm my position on anything, but there are very many interesting developments and uh, historical theorists like to put out many interesting ideas and uh, I would say plot events, but that's kind of a weird way to put it. But these, these trails and these leads that they developed and that they think may show an alternate version of history than what we previously thought had happened. So we'll start with the Holy Bloodline Theory, which is probably the best known for its presentation in the Da Vinci Code, as if you guys have ever seen that. It's also a book by Dan Brown, which I highly recommend. It was a very interesting book. I think you guys would really enjoy that. It was pretty good. But before Da Vinci Code, we have a book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which was the foundation for this. It kind of started all this historical all these historical theories about the Templars and this holy bloodline idea. And it was a, a very, very powerful and influential book when it was first published. And I think uh, very similar to Da Vinci Code, it was probably not allowed to be in some schools like uh, Catholic schools and stuff because of the ideas that it presented. So it was very interesting. And this is because uh, legend says that after the crucifixion, the pregnant Mary Magdalene, if you guys remember Mary Magdalene, if you ever read the Bible, Mary Magdalene was the so-called prostitute in the Bible that Jesus healed and made 
essentially like a female disciple. Well, they believe that uh, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that she actually had her own gospel called the, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and that there were other Gnostic Gospels. Gnostic meaning uh, pretty much outside of our modern day Bible. They presented uh, alternate theories and they included a very feminine aspect into the idea of Christianity because we have uh, the Holy Spirit, which is, if you think about it, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. But what is the Holy Spirit? Nobody ever explains what the Holy Spirit is. And throughout centuries of history, we have seen other holy trinities where they have the Father, the Father, the, the baby, the Son, and then who are we missing? The wife. So this is where the feminine aspect comes in. So it's very interesting. So they think that uh, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy or whatever that needed this like feminine aspect in the religion by Mary, Mary Magdalene. And that supposedly she fled the Holy Land after he was crucified. She arrived in France and she gave birth to a daughter named Sarah. Uh, Mary Joseph, Mary Joseph of Arimathea and some of Jesus's followers who had traveled with her then went on to form what's called the Merovingian dynasty which is very interesting. If you guys have ever heard of that, it's one of the first dynasties of France. And uh, their symbol was actually the fleur-de-lis, the flower. If you guys uh, have ever looked at French crests or studied French culture, this is a very popular image. You'll most likely know what I'm talking about. But uh, the Merovingian dynasty would give birth to all the kings of France. And meanwhile, back in the Middle East, the early church was on the rise. The apostles Paul and Peter spreading the message to the Roman Empire. The, the then pagan emperor Constantine caught wind of this movement and as a political mover, maneuver adopted the new faith. So really the church starts growing with Paul and Peter and they form these original ideas about what Christ's life looked like and what he did and how he acted and what they were supposed to be and do as Christians. And uh, they were heavily persecuted because it was a highly pagan culture. And as we'll see, they were very influenced by this highly pagan culture. But uh, Constantine became what was known as really the first Christian emperor. And that term's kind of used, used loosely because many people believed he only became the first Christian emperor as a political maneuver to stop all these riots of Christians at the time. Um. Because of this, he held one of the most important church gatherings in history, called the Council of Nicaea. The importance of this council cannot be overlooked because centuries of religious persecution, as we are talking about, and Constantine's adoption of this new religion ultimately led to the demise of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was very pagan, but as Constantine held this meeting, he let these Christian leaders have influence pretty much over the empire and some of the responsibilities and duties that it did um this is also important because it made the the modern dates for easter made the dates for christmas it did the administering of the sacrilege it did all of these very modern christian rituals that some of you are all very familiar with and that's kind of the importance of the meaning because we say that Christ was born on December 25th, but December 25th was also a pagan holiday. And that's the shining through of the pagan culture and its influence on Christianity. 
and also that sacred feminine because back then rome greece all of those ancient civilizations had gods and goddesses so during this council the many sects of christianity continued to debate the presentation practice and makeup of their new religion and on top of that this is also where we see the casting out of the Gnostic Gospels, as we were talking about before. These were banned books of the Bible. They were contrary to doctrine. They presented these ideas that made Christ appear too human in form, he, that he was more of a human than he was actually the Son of God. So they're very interesting books. I have a copy of them if you guys are interested in this theory and that this historical theory. I recommend uh, you look into those. It presents some pretty interesting stuff. It is rumored that the early church wanted to keep quiet the fact that Jesus had been married and fathered a bloodline. So this is essentially the storyline that the book The Holy Blood and Holy Grail follows. So it's very interesting. Uh, however, centuries later, a military order was formed to protect Christ's bloodline. Who do you think that order was? Uh, the Catholic Church. The Knights Templar. The Knights Templar. Oh. <laughs> See? Military order, what we've been talking about this whole time. That's what they believe protected Christ's bloodline. Um, as you might have guessed, like the Knights Templar, as we've been talking about them, uh, according to the theory, they believe that the Templars had found vast wealth after secretly digging under the Temple Mount. So we know that they were famously wealthy, but do we really ever know how these, um, how these Templars really get this wealth? Well, they believe it was from them secretly digging under the Temple Mount because there was a good amount of time between when the order was founded with the original nine knights to when they actually started doing stuff and protecting pilgrims on the way to the Holy Land. So what did they do during this time? Well, people believe that they may have been digging under the Temple Mount and that they may have found scrolls or the Holy Grail or, Ark or the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, maybe the scrolls revealed that Jesus had been married and that Mary Magdalene had fled to fled to France. It's all very up to speculation, but it's a very interesting theory. Um, it is believed that they gained this power from the papacy after the papacy had discovered proof of the bloodline, which they wanted to keep quiet, of course, because they didn't want anything going against what they've already been practicing. They would have started a riot and would have been reforming religion. They didn't want that. So ultimately, what it was, it only, this ultimately led to their demise on Friday the 13th. 1307 supposedly that's the theory they're like all right we've been hiding this enough we we need the templars to die off so that nobody can get hold of this idea and then everything will go back to normal and we'll be fine um so connecting to the bloodline theory and the fact that the templars may have even lived on is with the research presented in the book the hook decks key to the secret history of north america by scott walter you want to talk about some of your stuff with Scott Walter? Um, yeah, his um, his his theory uh, he is convinced is not a theory of this fact, and we um, we disregard these these um, evidences like the Kensington runestone and um, other other uh, scriptures and sculptures and carvings and uh, all scattered across North America. We disregard because we have previously thought fact to be that they died off in Europe, but um. This is most likely not the case, as they uh, they they must have done much more traveling and, and uh, practicing of their religion in secrecy, and somehow have made their way all the way to North America from Europe. 
Yeah, so he presents a very interesting theory that connects to the bloodline theory. The hooked X. Uh, if you take an X and you cut it across through the middle, you have a you have a phallus symbol, and then you have uh, like a point. Um, the phallus symbol was supposed to represent uh, the female womb, and it was supposed to represent a chalice or the Holy Grail. Yes. They believed that the Holy Grail wasn't a cup, but it was this bloodline that descended from Christ and Mary Magdalene and went all the way through history. And the Knights Templar caught wind of this, and they became the guardians of it. And that they were the guardians of this great theory and secret that, if revealed, could devastate the Christian population of the time. So it's very interesting. And uh, this is theory, as we've been talking about. I don't want to go with it 100% because there's still lots of speculation as to if this is all true but there is a lot of very interesting stuff and it it's stuff that you can't really just gloss over and dismiss because of truly what it presents and the oddity of it because we'll talk about scott walter a little bit later but some of the stuff he presents is very unique uh scott walter brings up several unique artifacts that don't follow this regular line of american history and he believes that some of these templar uh Templars may have left artifacts in North America. So now we'll talk about that. So now to talk more about the artifacts that Scott Walter has um, brought a lot of compelling evidence about. Um, he is a forensic geologist. Tell us who Scott Walter is. Huh? Yeah, oh, tell yeah. us who Scott Walter is. Scott Walter. He is a forensic geologist. He has been president of American Petrographic Services since 1990 and is responsible for the independent petrographic analysis testing laboratory where the Kensington runestone was brought for investigation in 2000. He's been the principal petrographer in more than 5,000 investigations throughout the U.S. and around the world, including the evaluation of fire-damaged concrete at the Pentagon following the attacks of September 11, 2001. And then that's right off his book, which I have a free yes, signed yeah, copy of. Right so if that sounded very scripted, that's because it was. <laughs> so I wanted to get a really good background of uh, Scott Walter. So Scott Walter's background from Scott Walter. Yes. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about one of his first pieces of evidence that the Templars may have made it to the New World, the Newport Tower. One of these artifacts is known as the Newport Tower. Located in Newport, Rhode Island, this tower has been an iconic landmark for the people that live around it, but possibly a misunderstood one as well. Originally, the tower was purported to be a stone windmill dating back to the 1700s. However, new evidence conducted by forensic geologist Scott Walter suggests that the stone is a lot older than it appears and may have originally had a roof built up to the columns that, to hold it up. So essentially, this, uh, this Newport Tower, they thought it was a windmill. If you look it up on Google Images or whatever, you'll see that it's... Uh, it's this very interesting structure. It has uh, several columns that supports this main body up top. And then uh, they actually believed that they had wooden structures built onto it as well, supposedly, as he believes, by the Templars, that uh, made it pretty much into a round church. If you guys have ever seen uh, the pavilion above Christ's tomb at the Temple Mount, it looks strangely similar. Similar. Thank you. <laughs> Similar to this. Um, which is also funny because where were the Templars? They were in the Temple Mount, which was where Jesus' tomb was. So maybe they got this idea based on Christ's tomb in the Temple Mount. 
And uh, because of those wooden structures we were talking about earlier, there's actually weathered marks on the side of the tower that show that there was other pieces connected into it. And then I think they also did an archaeological excavation. They found uh, like wooden pillars that would have supported the other pieces of the structure. So it was very interesting. Um, another interesting fact about this tower has to do with two perpendicular keystones featured above the column inside the structure. Supposedly, on the winter solstice, these two keystones illuminated each other and that they maybe pointed to the Kensington rune sun. He suggests that in his book. But uh, these two keystones were interesting. For those who know their architecture, the keystone is the strongest structure of any building because it holds up the arc. It's that one stone in between the arc. Um, so easily, it's easily the most important stone of any structure. And because it's the most important structure or stone in any structure, Scott believes that it holds important symbolism, that it may be in the shape of what's called the Orphic Egg, was pretty, which is kind of a pagan version of the Holy Grail. So they hid these subtle clues in all their structures and buildings and runes and chapels and all this different stuff that they made to suggest they knew information about the Holy Grail, but not just the Holy Grail as a chalice, but the Holy Grail as maybe Christ's bloodline and that Christ had descendants that live on to maybe even today. Uh, like we said, uh, on, the, on the winter solstice, there's a light that shines through a window and the top of the structure. It's more like a small slit. It shines through the slit. And as the sun moves throughout the day on the winter solstice, it slowly makes its way to illuminate the keystone. And Scott sees this as the light, the, the light illuminating the keystone as the connection between male and female. Because universally speaking, the God uh, in alchemy, the sun represented uh, a God, the, the male God, and that the Orphic egg representing the Holy Grail, which is synonymous with the the goddess. So the God and the goddess, this theme of man and female joined together, Christ and Mary Magdalene joined together, represented in this structure. And then uh, he's also done extensive work on the Kensington runestone, which we'll talk about now. So now we're going to talk about one of Scott Walter's most prized discoveries, um, the Kensington runestone. Um, much debate over whether this was a hoax or whether it was um, actual evidence that could help point to the fact that uh, the Templars existed in North America. Yeah, so the Kensington runestone was his his baby project, pretty much. It was his pride and joy. And if you didn't know that, read his book, Kensington Runestone, Compelling New Evidence, which is bigger than the Bible. <laughs> it is a ginormous book, and uh, it, it elaborates on so much. Yeah, I just showed him it. The book's huge. So if you if you're interested in this after we talk about it, go check it out. It's really good. Um, the Kensington runestone was found embedded in tree ridges when the Swedish immigrant Olaf Omen was felling trees on his farm. So he's chopping down these trees, and then all of a sudden he finds in the roots of this tree this weird stone with all these writing and stuff that he doesn't even know what it is on it. And then when he finds it, he takes a stone and it startles professionals. He takes it. He's like, Hey, do any of you guys know what this might be? And uh, they started noticing at first that it was dated 1362. 
So immediately they're like, no, this has got to be a hoax. Nobody was here before 1490 or 14, yeah, 1492. That's when Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. It's impossible that anything European, because they noticed the runes were very similar to get this Cistercian and Templar runes. That it was impossible for anybody else to be there before 1492, so it baffled them, and they it was condemned by the academic community, and so of, and so was Olav Omen because they they thought that he made a hoax just so he can get some attention. This statement was due to a belief that the markings and the stone appeared too modern to be older than the current time period, which was the 1800s. Uh, they also noticed that Olaf had a book about similar runes in his library and that he could have easily carved the stone. So they're like, all right, well, we think that if it's a hoax that he carved these runes and that he knew how to write in this language because he had a book about it. So there you go. It's a hoax. We wait a few years down the road. However, we find that uh, recent archaeological and geological surveillance of the stone conducted by forensic geologists Scott Walter has argued to the contrary, because we now know that the runes appear modern because Olaf had scraped the dirt out of them, and because of the scratches caused by the roots, we we, find, we essentially found out what the date of the stone was. So, he he found the stone, he takes it out of the tree roots, he brings it in his house, he cleans it off, he takes a, a little scraper tool and he cleans out the runes. See, that's that why mistake, yeah, yes. that's why they thought the runes were more modern than history is now proved. Because he tarnished the runes to try and uh, make them more defined. It's very interesting. But then Scott Walter is like, all right, well, let's look besides the runes, and we'll see that the markings that the tree roots have made over the time, because the tree roots rub up against the stone, will we'll date stone according to that. And, and essentially it proved true. To what it was of stone with weird runes dating to 1362 possibly templar in origin um on top of that uh scott Walter was also influential in deciphering the runestone's message and uh he was essentially able to figure out what it actually read and uh, i got the rough translation here so i can read that to you guys so this is what the kensington runestone says Eight Gotlanders and 22 Norwegians on this reclaiming acquisition journey. Far to the west from Vinland, we had a camp by two shelters, one day's journey north from the stone. We were fishing one day. After we came home, we found ten men red with blood and death. Av Maria, safe from evil. There are ten men by the sea to look after our ships. Fourteen days' journey from this island, year 1362. So it's very interesting. We know that the Vikings had made it as far as Newfoundland and then Vinland, and it actually mentions Vinland in the stone. We know that the Vikings made it that far, and that they made continued journeys, but for the longest time, people thought that Columbus was the one who actually made it to the American continent itself. So this kind of baffled historians because, again, it's dated 1362, and with the message, they believe, actually, that was specifically with the line of Maria, this was maybe a line that the Templars actually used themselves. And it was pretty much like a, a prayer over these ten dead men that had died. We don't know who they were or what they were doing. We know that they were on the journey, as it says. We, we don't know exactly if they were looking for anything or what they were doing. So 
it's very puzzling and interesting. The stone uses runes that were popular in the Cistercian order, like we were talking about earlier. The Cistercians were essentially with St. Bernard of Clarivax, like the founders of the Templars. They made the rule book for the Templars. So the question begs, could this stone be undoubtable proof that Columbus was not the first explorer to North America? That's the question that this stone brings up, and that's why it's so controversial. That's why this stone's so important in the historical community. And Scott Wilterson continue works on this. And I again, I recommend that you read some of his books. Scott Wilter brings up several more of these very interesting artifacts, like the Kensington Runestone and the Newport Tower. In his book, The Hook Decks, his book, Akhenaten to the Founding Fathers, his book, Kensington Runestone, Compelling New Evidence, and uh, his wife even has a book out called American Nation of the Goddess by Janet Walter. They, It's like a family that studies this theory. So it's very interesting. I definitely recommend you guys look into it. And more about the Kensington Runestone as it's such a compelling piece of history. Now on to another interesting topic, uh, the Freemasons. Now, uh, Freemasonry is a very um, interesting, interesting group. Um, my friend Jacob would actually like to uh, look into them and possibly um, possibly maybe join them. Um, yeah, shout out to the Carbondale Lodge. Oh, yeah, we're going to Carbondale for, uh, for college, so... <clears throat> Probably looking, joined down there. He's looking forward to, to meeting and greeting them. All right. Freemasonry. This is our last historical theory and maybe connection with the Templars. So Freemasonry is another subject with which historical theorists like to connect to the Knights Templar. They believe that when our nation was founded, it was very much founded of an already developed plan dating back centuries, maybe by the Knights Templar themselves. When our nation was founded, many people don't know that a lot of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were actually Freemasons, a group that claimed secret lineage from the Templars themselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this may sound a little, a little far-fetched, but actually George Washington was a Mason. Thomas Jefferson was a Mason. Benjamin Franklin was a Mason. John Adams was a Mason. Uh, FDR was a Mason. If... You, you can look it up. Tons and tons of these very American professional people and people fathers. that we, yeah, founding fathers, people that we look up to, they they were all connected with this organization. So it was a very, I want to say powerful, because they don't really do, they're, and they're not trying to take over the world. I'll get that at that. Many people try to claim that too. That's not what they do. But they're, they're a very par powerful organization, and they're very developed, and they're very reputable. And they may be descended, actually, from the Templars, as, we, as we've been talking to them. Because within their order, they even have degrees and uh, systems and rituals and stuff that are connected to Solomon's Temple, which the Templars made connections to, similar to the Freemasons. And uh, they have uh, Templar degrees, and they have the Order of the Templars in the York Rite. So this very, this very deep connection, you can read books about it and look at website articles. It's the stuff's out there. So it's very interesting. Um, some of their symbolism actually appears to be the same as the Templars. Uh, and some even believe that when it comes to Washington, D.C., ultimately the United States itself was founded by Freemasons. 
So uh, many of the symbols that I'm talking about uh, include the skull and the crossbones. So the Freemasons have what's called the Chamber of Reflections, which is essentially a room where you go, you sit down, and you, you think about life, and you think about what you want to do in your life before you die to make it all worthwhile. And uh, one of the symbols that they use in there is a, a human skull. And uh, sometimes associated with the, the two cross beamers, if you know what I'm getting at. It's uh, the Jolly Roger, as we know it, which is pretty much we call the pirate flag. Um, but the Templars also used this symbol because they buried their dead in ossuaries, which were boxes where they would take the skull and the two femurs and they'd cross them. And they'd put them in this box, they'd put them in the ground, and then they'd lay a stone over it and they'd put a carving of a sword, just one sword. And uh, you can see this in some of their cathedrals, and you can actually see this, interestingly enough, with uh, the Westford Knight, another North American artifact that Scott Walter talks about in his books. <laughs> all right, so Washington, D.C. They see many signs for this, especially with the fact that all the cornerstones in D.C. were laid by Masons. George Washington himself laid some of these. He laid the one for the Capitol building, for sure. Uh Think about that. A free Masonic president laying the foundation for the nation's capital, which still stands today. It's crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, even the Washington Monument, they will claim to, because it's 555 feet tall. Uh, some conspiracy theorists like to say that it was supposed to be 666, and you probably know what I'm getting at. But uh, 555 actually is a, a famous Masonic number, and I won't explain that, but it's that's a famous Masonic number. That's all I'll say. Another thing they see is goddess statues, which can be found all throughout D.C., and this relates back to the sacred feminine, the god and the goddess, the light and the dark, this dualism that the Templars so worship, the holy bloodline between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Um, even the Columbia logo, if you guys have watched some movies made by them, it shows a goddess holding a torch, just like Lady Liberty in New York Harbor, which does the same thing. And she holds her stone, uh, dated 1776, the year that America was founded. Now, there's even a statue on top of the Capitol building, which is uh, another goddess. You guys have looked at that one. That one's actually pretty interesting, too. And I'll put an image of that up on the Facebook page as well. But why the goddess? Well, like I was saying, it goes back to the holy bloodline and dualism, a Templar concept founded in modern-day Freemasonry. The belief that the Templars found something or died off because of this worship. Like I was saying, this idea of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, the only natural conclusion would be that the Holy Spirit may be the sacred feminine, which the Templars may have died because they believed in. Um, Scott Walter even went as far as to call it the City of the Goddess. And uh, his wife, America, Nation of the Goddess, the book because of all the dualistic and Masonic undertones in it. So the conclusion stays the same. If the Templars survived extinction, they would need a capital or their new Jerusalem. They couldn't take back Jerusalem during the Crusades, and we talked about those, and we talked about how they slowly panned out, and they started to fail. Well, because they couldn't do that, they wanted to create a new Jerusalem. They were burned at the stake in 1307, and most people believe they all went but extinct, but other historical theories claim that they may have made it to North America and established what's called this New Jerusalem. It's a very interesting concept. If you can't go to Jerusalem, why not make just a new one? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> a very debated topic. Um, so what 
better way than to form a new secret brotherhood as well with a capital in this new world that they found in 1362, at least with the Kensington runestone we know, way long before Columbus in 1492. It shows they had more connections than we previously thought, and that the Templars aren't what history claims they are. This is why it's one of history's mysteries. All right, we'll wrap this up, and next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject. Uh, I'm not too sure what it will be or about how long it is, is going to be, but with the coronavirus, I have plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, got those weeks off school, guys, so we're going to crunch out some few episodes for you. Yes, and um, if you have any interesting questions uh, regarding to this topic, we'll we'll look them over, and we might even uh, consider doing a podcast on them as well. So if you could, um, if you could comment on... Uh, Anything, uh, give us questions, comments, concerns, anything. We'll, we'll take those and we'll, uh, we, we might even do another podcast on it. Yeah. Um, as usual, I'd like to give a shout out to our anchor, uh, to our, to our uh, sponsor, Anchor, my podcasting service that has been a miracle in making this episode. I could not have done this without it. If you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast, it's a great service to do that and I highly recommend it. Yep, and then don't forget that you guys can go on Anchor too, and you can donate to us and whatever you can give helps and comps because we could use a better mic, better mic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I give a shout out to you guys, my listeners, as well as we continue to come yep, bo- embark on this uh, podcast because without your interest, I would not have created this the podcast. Uh, all being said, thanks guys, and have a nice week. Yep. All right, guys, have a nice week. Carpet dime.